The love is the driving force because although Titi and I were businesswomen and we're really trying to survive out here, I think the love and the desire for us to be helpful and to go against our instincts as businesswomen and to share what we knew and what we discovered or was doing or was seeing, sharing that information in such a big way, I think all the success came after that. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Start Right Here. We are the podcast that puts the spotlight on the career paths of BIPOC beauty professionals, entrepreneurs, and creatives, as well as issues related to beauty and inclusion impacting us in the industry, as well as impacting consumers. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope that conversations on this show help fuel your path to success. Hello, everybody. I'm really excited about today's show because I have another woman from Queens, raised in Queens like myself. I am pleased to welcome Miko Brandt, who is the co-founder and CEO of the Miss Jessie's Products for Curly Hair, who, along with her sister TT, were at the forefront of the movement for us to embrace our curls and coils. And they had groundbreaking salons, And then this extensive product line that's just grown and has created opportunities for curls of every texture to find products that work. Today, we're going to talk about what it takes to build and scale a beauty business. Welcome, Miko. Hi, Corinne, and thank you so much for having me. It's so good to see you again and talk about my favorite subject, Miss Jessie's and TG Branch. Yes, yes, yes. I know that we met when I was at Real Simple. It was either 2004 or 2005. And I know this because I had been natural since about the mid-90s, like 93, 94. And I was still natural and curly pudding. You brought the curly pudding and I started using it. Oh, wow. That's a good one. And that's our first one. So that's a special one for us. <laughs> yeah. So it's really great to see how your business has grown and to cheer you on and see all the great things that have happened and to have known both you and TT. Before we start talking about your career path, let's begin with some fun questions in our For the Love of Beauty section. What's the first beauty product you remember trying or buying? Blue Magic with the tin cap. And what's the latest beauty product we've tried? The latest beauty product that I'm into right now is Miss Jessie's Feather Soft Curls. It hasn't hit Target, Walmart, Walgreens, or CVS yet. It will in 2022, but I can't put it down. It is so good. We're known for our stylist, Corinne, but I use it as a leave-in, but also as just like a singular style styler, and it's good stuff. Excellent. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? Well, you know, when it comes to beauty, it's about comfort and it's about how you feel comfortable and what makes you feel good. And I think the beauty comes through when you're having those two different notes, when you're hitting those notes. And that shows up whether it be a lipstick, whether it be a fashion item, or even your hair choices. Some of us feel better in relaxed hair. 
Some of us feel better in natural hair. Some of us feel better with color, blonde, red, whatever. But whatever makes you feel comfortable, and that's where the beauty is going to shine through because that's also where the confidence is. So really paying attention to what you like versus what trends are, that's going to be the key to where your beauty is going to exude. Oh, I love that answer. Was the beauty industry a destination or a detour for you? Well, for me, it was definitely a destination. I very shyly and bashfully had just desires and ambitions to be a hairstylist during a time where my dad thought that that wasn't the best thing. (laughs) He wanted me to pursue something a little bit more professional. I was always drawn to beauty, things that were beautiful, whether it be a flower, whether it be a lipstick, whether it be beautiful women that I saw on TV. I always tried to do something to make something more beautiful. So that beauty industry was sitting there and it was just a matter of time. So it was calling you in lots of different ways. It really was. And, you know, I had to become a young adult to have the courage and the confidence to admit that that's where I really wanted to go. And, you know, I had to start with my family first. They were a bit, you know, on the intellectual side, really wanted me to take a path somewhat on that side of the world. One day I just got the courage to say, you know what, I want to do hair. And I'm so glad that I did because later my book smart, intelligent and business smart sister, Titi Branch, would join me in my love and in my passion. And together we did a lot of nice things. Look at that lesson here, folks. Had Miko not spoken up, we wouldn't have these products today. (laughs) You know, there may have not been a Miss Jessie's had she not followed that dream, that passion, and had the courage to just tell people that that is what she wants. So it, it is really important to just talk about things that you want and not think that people can read your mind. Would you say that entrepreneurship is in your blood? I think because it was introduced to me and also my sister at a very early age from a dad who thought being independent would be the key to our survival because Corinne, he was somewhat of a ladies man, you know, in his time and he was blessed with two girls. Could you imagine? And he knew some of the pitfalls and some of the tricks out here waiting for young ladies And he wanted to arm us with knowledge in that area, but he also wanted to arm us with independence. And that came in the form of hard work and knowing how to provide for yourself. So Titi and I were no strangers to hard work. When he was painting a house or doing whatever he was doing to make a dollar, because he was a serial entrepreneur, Titi and I were usually like right beside him. So I think that work ethic really, really showed up when we were young adults. And that, you know, he kind of shamed us out of wanting to have, you know, aspirations to work for someone. So our first cleaning business when we were like 19 and 20 was a cleaning business. And that was like our real first serious entree into having something of your own. Let's talk a little bit about the cleaning business. What did you learn there that has carried you through as an entrepreneur as you moved to Miss Jessie's and opened salons and created products? Well, in my 20s, during a time when some of us are most beautiful in our 20s because we're young and we have a lot of great energy I spent a good portion of my 20s cleaning 
toilets, which was extremely humbling for me as my friends were going to clubs and they had disposable income. Not too many had kids. So they were really enjoying their lives where during a time when many of my friends were doing that, Titi and I had our heads and our hands in toilet bowls. And before doing the scrubbing and the cleaning of it all, we had to canvas and we had to get the business. So that came in the form of knocking on each door. And at the time we were living in Flushing, Queens. And we would go to like Main Street and just, you know, ask people, did they need some cleaning? And luckily a few did. And that's how we started our business. So the cleaning business taught me, and I think TD too, that hard work, whether you like it or not, will pay off. But the cleaning business specifically to me taught me what I did not want to do. You know, even though I knew that I was my own boss and I can put that star on my forehead, I really did not enjoy doing it. And that's when I reached back to some of the things that I love, like beauty and fashion and those kinds of things. So after scrubbing enough toilet bowls, I enrolled myself first at the Fashion Institute of Technology for fashion because I thought that might be the way. That didn't work for me. And then when I graduated from FIT in New York City, I enrolled myself into hair school. And that was a good move. One of the things I loved about reading your book was, and folks, I'm going to include a link to the book in our show notes, was the way that you worked on shoots and used your creativity there. It was even before you started a salon, right? Yeah. Titi and I, without a lot of money, we didn't have the budget, we didn't have the money to hire a photographer, makeup artist. So a big part of us building our business really was in tapping to our own talents and our own do-it-yourself approach to things. So if we didn't know how to take a picture, Titi read a few books, you know, I helped with the makeup, with the hair. Those were the ways that we did things. So when I was a stylist and Titi decided to become an agent out of the blue, Corinne. She worked at ABC, Eyewitness News, as a field producer. So she was in media. But she ended up becoming an agent, and we decided that Titi would represent me. And out of everyone she represented, and some of those people she represented were photographers, her phone started ringing when she started representing me. And we would do photo shoots to create a press kit for ourselves to create an interest and just to have a great presentation when we met with beauty editors or anyone when we were trying to canvas just like we did with the cleaning business to drum up more work for us. I think that the ways in which you channeled your creativity all started to work together, which is really interesting to me. Let's talk about the first salon that you two opened. How did that come about? While Titi was my agent, I had been doing hair in our Brooklyn studio. We had a loft on Atlantic Avenue. It was between 3rd Avenue and 4th Avenue. It was called the Borm Hill section of Brooklyn. And I think we just outgrew it. Doing hair in the house, we were over it after a certain point. But I think those jobs that Titi was able to get for me outside of our home salon, and we had a booking for Ashley Stewart. Titi booked the job. There was a wonderful woman. Her name was Sonia Align, and she gave Titi a shot. (laughs) And at the time, Sonia Align worked for a magazine called Black Elegance. And I think she was just a person in the community looking out for, she saw Titi and I 
wanting to do our best. Anyway, she referred us to a gig with Ashley Stewart, and they needed one week worth of work and with a hairstyle. So they placed me there. I made $8,000. And that was a lot of money to us. And once we got that check, we split it. I think I made a little bit more than Titi, but Titi and I were still in a big sister, little sister dynamic. Everything we did together was pretty much split down the middle. It didn't matter that I did the hair and she got the job. We looked at it as sisters. So Titi said, you know what? We outgrew it. We outgrew this apartment. And she was the one who forced us to get a two-chair salon in the Borm Hill section of Brooklyn on Bond Street. And that's where our maybe official beauty business started. Even though I have to say our business in the house, it was official. <laughs> People were coming. But once we got that two-chair salon, that's when it was really turned up. And like there was a buzz associated with you once you got to Bond Street that started to grow, wouldn't you say? I would definitely say so. And I think that was another opportunity, whether it be a photo shoot, whether it be how we came to market as a sister team, it kept showing up. You know, we had to tap into our creativity and we had to do things our way because we didn't have the other way to do it. And I think that creativity, the partnership, the sisterhood, her experiences, my experiences would show up like we had a two-chair salon and it had a wood floor and we stained it and sanded it ourselves and made it mahogany. Then my mother, who's very creative, she came in and did like a really beautiful treatment on the wall. We had like the Hollywood light bulbs that people use when they're doing makeup. And our salon turned out to be this like candlelit, really beautiful looking salon And everyone who walked by, they would stop just in the beauty of it all. And luckily, we were doing good hair and offering good service. And that combination really had people talking about us. And after that, you had several locations. What did you learn about finding locations that allow for growth without kind of like putting too much strain on you? So locations are extremely important. And after Bond Street, we had had so much success there, we really got high on ourselves and we thought, you know what, we can get a bigger salon. All we have to do is move a block or two up or across Atlantic Avenue. And we did that. And we got another salon on Bond Street. And I think it was two or three times more the rent. It was probably three times the size. And that was a horrible experience for us in every way. We were fighting with the landlord. Our two-chair salon that always seemed busy now was always empty. It was just really hard. And we didn't plan. We needed to plan that out better. And we ended up losing that salon. And that was a really hard time, particularly for me, because I decided that I wanted to keep my baby with my boyfriend. And we had just broken up. And I knew we were going to be broken up forever. So it was quite a hard time. And yeah, we ended up losing that great salon. That was also a good looking salon, but we didn't have the proper planning. Let's talk a little bit about that because it is a setback, of course, but there was some really valuable lessons in that you talked about planning your next move as an entrepreneur. So you could get excited about the moment and lose sight of the things that you have to pay attention to. So what I heard from you is that the space was larger than it needed to be. And you wrote about this a little bit in your book and that the relationship with your landlord was also problematic. So it wasn't even just 
the space itself, but it was the stress of dealing with a person who controlled the space. And we didn't have the clientele. After that experience, what steps did you take? Oh, my God. Titi and I were fighting so much because it was like, whose fault? This is your fault. No, this is not my fault. We were having a hard time together and we had to pack up and leave there. But luckily, we purchased a brownstone in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn in 1999. And we ended up having to refuge there. So current things are really how you look at them and how you handle setbacks and failures. And although we did zero planning on the move from our two-chair salon to a six-chair salon, had we not lost that salon and had we not had to figure it out and had I not been pregnant knowing that I was going to be a single parent, we would have had no reason to really figure out what the next step was. We had a mortgage. We didn't want to lose our brownstone because we just lost our business. So we were really, really paying attention. I ended up having my baby. Uh, That was the best thing that ever happened to me. And we had to figure it out. But it was actually bath time. I lived on the fourth floor of our brownstone. And as my son started getting bigger and stronger, he splashed around and I could no longer wear my hair styled straight. I really love like a Dominican blowout. I really love to wear it straight. And when the water hit my hair, my hair would just go east, west, north, never south. You know, (laughs) it was just a lot. But I didn't have the time to get it together because we started doing hair in the house. And the weirdest or the greatest thing that ever happened was the customers started asking me, what did I do to my hair to get it looking like that? And I was like, what? (laughs) And because we were hungry and because we were struggling, it didn't take me any time to understand this is it. You know, I was always a great hairstylist, so I got really good at styling hair. But what we didn't have were the products that would really make good on our promise for the customer to keep their style intact once they went home. That's kind of the genesis of the whole curly hair and just new format and started right there. Let's talk about the products. Was Titi the one that was formulating? Yeah, so Titi, she did become the master mixer, but it was rare that either one of us did anything alone. So even though I was the master stylist at the time, Titi was right there with me doing twist outs, washing the hair, blowing the hair out. And the same thing with mixing product and formulating. We would go and source ingredients. We would go and use something in the market that we liked, but just didn't have enough this or just didn't have enough that. But it was TD who stayed up later than I did because I was the sister with the baby. So after I did a day's worth of work and fed my baby and played with him, I was tired. But it was Titi. She stayed up. And one day she woke me up. I remember it was around 3.30, maybe 4 in the morning. She busted in my apartment because we lived on different floors. And she said, I got it. (laughs) And she came over and she showed me curly pudding in her hand because we had been working on it. But it was either too thick or too thin or we didn't have the right smell. But when you're dealing with product and when you're dealing with emulsions, it's all about the mixture. You know, it could be too strong or you're not fragrant enough or too hard or too soft. But anyway, she showed me what we all know today is curly pudding. And once I felt it and we were testing products on our own selves, we knew we had it. So it was just a matter of spreading the good word with our very small clientele in our Brooklyn Brownstone. 
And that's where it started. A couple of things there. Doing hair where you live. You had to create some boundaries, correct? We did. Because people would just come to your door thinking that they could walk in like it was a salon. Oh, my God. We had to create some extra special and different boundaries because it was the beginning and the birth of the Internet where people that you didn't know or you had no prior introduction to would be at your doorstep talking about they wanted to get a hair appointment or they wanted to come inside and get some curly pudding. And I don't think me and Titi were moving with the speed of the Internet. You know, we had a baby upstairs. And, you know, oftentimes if you didn't have an appointment, we would be like, who are you? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then it escalated. And then sometimes the women would get mad because they heard about curly pudding. By that time, we were posting before and after pictures, which was a key marketing strategy. And they would get mad because some people would travel from out of state. They heard about it. Someone spoke about it on a chat room, they would call it. And when they couldn't get curly pudding, they got upset with us. And they would go online and say nasty things. But they actually helped to create more demand. We didn't know (laughs) that was happening. But they were creating more demand, so much that we had to carry our product. Our first store that we carried it outside of the Brownstone was a store in the Fort Greene section of Brooklyn. It was called Soda Fine. And it was ran by two white girls, and it was a thrift store. And that was the first store where people could go, and they didn't have to worry about our hours of operation. Right. Let's talk about manufacturing, which is a whole new area. So your hairstylist, TT, was an agent. She was a producer. How did you learn the manufacturing business? Definitely the time that we spent as kids with our grandmother, Miss Jessie. Our grandmother on our father's side, she was such a great cook. And anyone who knew us, they knew about Miss Jessie. We always talked about her. She was our favorite grandmother. She was a really good cook. But if you sat around Miss Jessie, you couldn't just sit there and do nothing. You had to be a good helper. And that's what we were as kids. We helped her make her cornbread. We helped her make all her meals for Thanksgiving. So we didn't know that what we learned at the kitchen table with Miss Jessie in terms of measuring, in terms of consistency, in terms of texture, in terms of smell, in terms of color, those were all the things that we needed to apply when we went to our kitchen table and we had to say, okay, this stuff is too hard or it's too oily or, you know, it smells too strong or all those kinds of things. So that just right emulsion or concoction was really, really alive in us because we'd had that experience sitting around Miss Jessie and helping her. So without any background in being a chemist, we knew what we were looking for and we knew the hair type. We knew what we were trying to do. So we kind of backed out of it and worked toward it in that unorthodox kind of way. And it worked. And it also shows that skills are transferable, really good skills are transferable. If you kind of pay attention to where you can, you know, people say get in where you can fit in. And that was an example of you learned some skills early on that you were able to apply to a different business, but it made the process of creating a product easier than it may have been, you know, had you not had that experience. And I think it's also worth noting that Titi and I, we didn't have the sophistication or the contacts to know that when you want to make a hair product, there's people who do things like that, nor did we have the capital to do it. So we just did what we always do. You do it yourself. 
Right. And there's also something to be said for that, because a lot of times people, you know, even today won't start something because they don't have the money and not knowing that start small and the DIY way could help. It doesn't have to be perfect when you start. You just have to start. That's a lot of what this podcast is. It's kind of encouraging people to start, start your career, start a business, start whatever it is that you're interested in. Don't wait for all things to align because they may never align. I think although Tiki and I grew up rich in our minds, our mother and father were certainly not rich, literally, you know, in the pockets. And I'm sure you can relate to this too. There's so many Titi Amigos in the world that grew up in Queens with us. We all had to learn how to do our hair. We all had to learn how to cook food before our mother and father came on. We all had to learn how to do things and make it good. We tend to be a creative people, so it's not as unique. It's something that we kind of do. It's part of our culture. We know how to make things. We're very creative, and particularly for us, tapping into those things Many of us are good at babysitting, cooking. We're just good at so many things. But being able to put a business together and pair it with that, I think many of us would be very successful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Let's talk about scaling. So after you were in the kitchen or at your dining room table in the house making the product, when did you go larger? Going larger for us, it went in stages. So at first it was Titi and I, and we did that all the way up until, oh my God, my back hurts. Oh my God, there's not enough hours in the day because the demand was creating, was being created, and we didn't have enough product to meet the demand. So then we had to hire a helper to help us inside the house. And then we had to move production from our kitchen down to our basement. We had to clear out our whole basement and we started an industry right in our basement. We had a production line. We had mixers. We didn't have the big kettles, but we had the big pizza dough makers. Um, It occurred to us one day to go down to the restaurant district and go buy a few of those so we can make larger batches. So we got organized in our production where we were turning out quite a bit of product. And then we outgrew that, you know, as we had our location at Sodafine, it occurred to us that we need to move to a larger space. So we outgrew the Brownstone and then we bought a 5,000 square foot warehouse in the Navy section in Brooklyn. And that was really good because we were able to make product there in a larger space. There was a loading dock, which was incredible because we used to have large tractor trailers coming to Hancock Street in Brooklyn. It was crazy. And we were able to staff up and get the people we needed. We did that. And we used to also pack and ship the products that we made. And as we were doing that, we were creating more demand. Luckily, it occurred to us one day to get someone to make our product. And that required someone to re-engineer our concoctions, to sit down and break down each ingredient. So we had a formula and it was the formula that was key. Owning your own formulas are the key. Owning your own whatever (laughs) is the key. You said so much there and such great stuff. Starting small and then building in stages. But the move to the 5,000 square foot factory, like finding a warehouse, first of all, must have been daunting in and of itself. 
Well, not really, because by that time, Titi and I were fearless. We had been scrappy. As I mentioned to you early, my dad, he pretty much raised us as boys. We were no strangers to hard work. We had done the canvassing for the cleaning business. So we weren't that scared of much. We looked at a bunch of different warehouses. We found the one that we liked the most. It was close enough to our house, and we ended up picking one on Hall Street. And it had a loading dock. And if you ever want to make your life easier when you're in that business, you got to get a loading dock. Things you won't think of. The other part was that you had to staff up. You went from a two-tier salon to a six-tier salon. Then you got a helper and more people, like a production line. But didn't you have to get people to run the warehouse? We had to get people to run the warehouse, but we were also multitaskers. So we had a customer service area and section. We had a production area and section. We had a fulfillment area and section. So the 5,000 square foot warehouse was a place for us to do everything 360. We marketed out of there. To answer your question, yes, we did have to staff up. And what did you learn about putting together a good team? Oh my God. So putting together a team that works for you and your business and the culture of your business, it can be very challenging. And when you're needing to make product very quickly, sometimes you don't have the time to see where someone's heart is or what their character is like, or do their values align with yours? Or is their business ethic similar to yours? So you kind of find out you have a thief working for you, you know, or you have a liar working for you. You have a saboteur in your business. You find out, or we certainly did, we found out a lot of those things on the job as we were so desperate to get out curly pudding to now supply the demand because We had a bright idea to get our product in Ricky's, which is a specialty store in New York City. And it was a store that I loved as, you know, an FIT student and graduate. But they had 25 stores. So that was considered huge distribution for Titi and I. And people were buying it like hotcakes. This is before any Target, Walmart, Walgreens, or CVS had it. People would come in now, get the product from 25 locations. And getting a Ricky's is a major thing. If you're not from New York, you might not get the value of Ricky's because it's beauty supply, but it's upscale beauty supply with a fashion twist. I guess that would be the best. It's a very trendy spot to be in. They had sex toys in there. They had a makeup line. And with Miss Jessie's, we got it in there gorilla style. We just went in there. We looked for the first black person we saw. I guess he was a stock man. We was like, you need this product in here because this stuff is fire. (laughs) He said, okay. And we said, you know, hook us up. And he said, all right, I got you. So he said, they got a meeting every Tuesday and have your stuff here. And we said, okay. We came down, we brought them a box. And next thing you know, we were in Ricky's. And Ricky's, they were asking us, what do you girls have in this product? Because this stuff, we can't keep it on the shelves. And that's where the category started in retail chains. Because before Miss Jessie's, there were none of our competitors there because it didn't occur to them to sell in a specialty store like that because there weren't products like that in the market. Right. Let's talk about the getting into the Walmarts, the Targets, the CVSs of the world. How did you make that happen? Did they come to you or did you have to convince them that this was an important category to consider? While we were building our business and scaling up and doing it stage by stage, 
we didn't realize that we were changing the dynamic in the marketplace. So if the typical woman with a tighter coiled or kinky textured hair type was going to target Walmart or Walgreens to get her relaxers, now she wasn't buying it so much that relaxer sales were down around 30%, which is a huge number, so much that I'm imagining any retailer would notice it. And I believe they did their research and they found us. And they called, they called, they called, they called the warehouse. And we had an older woman working for us at the time. And she said, TT, these people keep calling down here and they say from Target. Now we'd already told them a million times, oh, no, 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 because we'd gotten so many different kinds of calls by that time. But I guess, you know, it was the woman who was working for us, nice lady. She was insisting. So TT said, okay, I'll take the call. TT gets on the call with them, and they said, well, we really, really want you guys down here. And TT said, well, you know, when's the meeting? And she's asking them all the questions. They said, the meeting's tomorrow. And TT, she was one of those people, Corinne, she was smart, and she knew a little bit about everything. And she asked them, where is this meeting located? And they said, it's in Minneapolis. Titi was one of those people who knew that Target's headquarters is located in Minneapolis. (laughs) Once they told her it was in Minneapolis, she thought, okay, I think this is it. And we got in a plane ticket and that ticket was so expensive because it was for the next day and we had to sell and pitch. And Titi was the vocal. She was the media person. She just had a really nice way in her presentation and delivery So we sat at the table. There was around 10 people in that room at this meeting, and we started pitching, and the woman, she interrupted us, and she said, I know exactly who you are, and I'll order everything. And we became multimillionaires after that meeting. It's amazing. What was the next product after Curly Pudding? Curly Meringue. (laughs) And then, how many SKUs do you have now? We have a total of 41 SKUs now. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's all sizes and, you know, variations. We have 41 SKUs. My sister is smiling right now. Yes, definitely. What do you think of the shift that has occurred that curly pudding was kind of the start of that category being in Ricky's? And for retailers to see that we want to wear our hair in many other ways besides straight. How do you think the industry has changed? Well, honestly, as a pioneer, making curly pudding, which was the first of its kind in any store, including Ricky's, I think it came down to the dollar bill when it came to decision-making and wanting to reach out to companies like Miss Jessie's and really wanting to get and be a part of that action. This customer was serious about her hair. Now, mind you, at the time, curly pudding was $28 for a big tub. It was 16 ounces. So we were still in our kind of salon format, wanting to create big sizes. But it was $28. And I think it started with the retailer seeing a shift in their sales, a downward shift. And it made them do their research, as I mentioned to you before. But then also another thing happened in that once... They understood how much this customer is willing to pay for products that work. 
that brought another dynamic to the situation. Now the basket, let's say the retailer, the Target, the Walmart, the Walgreens, instead of just buying sanitary napkins at $5.99 and your toothpaste at $2.99, adding a $28 product to that basket really increased the value of that basket in a major way with one product. And I know when I was growing up, when I went into the large retailers, our section for the relaxer section or any products that were made for anyone who had a lot of texture in their hair, they were often dimly lit. They were often very dusty. I didn't feel a lot of love there. I felt like it just, it is what it was. But I think after the retailers understood that, no, 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 this customer, she is not a game. And she's very particular. She's very serious about her appearance and she wants the stuff that works. It made them reach out to the partners like the Miss Jessies of the world to have the products in the store so they could build that basket. So it starts with Titi and I mixing. It started with me having this baby, not this baby, my baby. He's a big boy now. He's 21. I was going to ask. I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Time has just flown so much. And our failures and our desire to hold on to our brownstone. You know, another key thing that I don't think I mentioned in our journey is that Titi and I made a conscious decision to be helpful to the customer. We took our salon and stylist hats off because the salon and the stylist, our instinct is not to tell the customer what we're doing, why we want her to come back to us. That's how we make our money. But when we saw what curly pinning did to our hair, because in some areas it's, you know, loose and slinky, but in other areas it's very tight and kinky. (laughs) And when we saw what it did to our hair and when we look back to us caring for our own hair when we were growing up, we said if we had curly pudding, we would have felt better about our texture because I was looking at my mother's straight hair, Japanese woman. And I had aspirations of straight hair where if I had a product that was non-chemical to transform my hair, I might've had a better relationship or better understanding of my self-image and where I fit in and what God gave me that I liked and that was beautiful. So that decision that Titi and I made to really tap into the people, the customer, because we viewed ourselves as the customer, that was the key. And showing her what to do, how to do it, how much to use, what not to do, that became the start of each one teaching one. And it took on a life of its own where now the customer is going to the stylist or the customer is going to Target saying, why don't you have Miss Jessie's? These are the things that I need. And it came from not a money-making venture, you know, at that point, because we've already been styles. It came from, you know what, this magic that we whipped up at our kitchen table, everybody needs to know about it. Yeah. And I love that you talked a little bit about doing befores and afters, the way that Miss Jessie's was marketed, the product and your services set you apart because it was different from what other people were doing. Yeah. I mean, to go and get your hair cut and to go in with relaxed hair, cut it off and come out with curly hair. Many people thought we were putting weaves in those before and after pictures, but it was the testament of our customers saying, no, no, no. I went in here one way and I came out another way. 
And this is what they use. Did Miss Jessie, your grandmother, get to see what you and Titi built? She did not. What do you think she would have thought? How do you think she would have felt? She would have thought, or she still thinks, because I still talk to my grandmother. We're in touch. And she would have said, y'all girls are doing it. She would have thought we were out of sight. And she would have bragged about us. And she would have probably been on the phone telling all her friends. You probably couldn't stop her from talking about how proud she was of what we were doing. And I think the part about it that she would like most is the fact that we were helping other people to find the just right style. But as Titi and I kept doing hair and sharing information, we realized that this was bigger than hair. People were finding their identity. They were feeling better about themselves. They were becoming more confident in who they are, particularly in this country where we've been encouraged to look unlike ourselves, to aspire and emulate you know, a European beauty standard where it was just so much bigger than hair. People became friends just asking another woman, hey, how'd you get your hair like that? What do you use? And it went so on and so on and so on. That's great. What do you hope the legacy of the Brandt sisters will be? Love, for sure. The love is the driving force because although Titi and I were businesswomen and we're really trying to survive out here, I think the love and the desire for us to be helpful and to go against our instincts as businesswomen and to share what we knew and what we discovered or was doing or was seeing, sharing that information in such a big way, I think all the success came after that. Yeah. And I think although TC's not here on this earthly plane, her presence is still felt in your business and in the way that you do the work. And that's a beautiful thing. Oh my God. Titi's fingerprint, her heartbeat is all over this business. We are still privately owned. I don't have any investors involved in our business. This business is extremely precious to me. I remember it just like yesterday when I told Titi, you know, one day Titi, everybody is, they're going to put a sign in the window and say, I do curly hair. You know, that was from a salon perspective. But yeah, it was love, the legacy of what Titi and I did together and what every jar or tube of Miss Jessie's is about. It's about the right stuff and it comes from a place of love. And it's really, really stood the test of time and is holding its own, you know, during a time where there's so many Me Too brands, there's so many large companies, the Unilevers, the Cloroxes, the L'Oreal's. There's a mass stampede toward this market because yes, there's money to be made. But, you know, sometimes, Corinne, if you don't have the right intention, the customer can feel it and she'll leave that product sitting right there on the shelf because she knows you're just trying to get her money. That's one thing about this category or this customer. She is so smart. She knows what works. She knows what doesn't work. She could really speak to things in a very detailed way and you cannot fool her. And I like that part about it. I am going to change the last question because I was going to ask you in the starting five for tips on building a team. But instead, because you brought up love, what are some ways to infuse this attitude of love of putting the customer first into your business? 
Well, it's less of an attitude and it's more of an intention. And believe it or not, what's in your heart, what's in your mind, what you're thinking when you're doing things with the right intention, you may not think people can see it or feel it, but they can. And it resonates and it comes through. And I may not be there or Titi may not be here on earth, but I believe when people pick up a jar or a tube of Miss Jessie's, they could feel it. So it's nothing that you can manufacture. You know, you just have to mean it and lead with that. So you're not caught doing wrong things or you're not producing stuff for the wrong reasons. And success and fame and recognition will come because everyone wants to be aligned with something that's loving. And I believe that's the key during a time where my sister is no longer here. And you know, when you have a partnership, Corinne, like Titi and mine together, and she's not here, that could certainly make any business crumble and fall. I think that the bond that we had together as sisters, but also the bond that we form with the customer is still holding Miss Jessie's and my family and myself down to this day so much that I don't have to let people inside my business, people that I don't know, people who may not have the same values as I do, and people who are just really trying to make a lot of money on this customer. So I'm really proud of it. And again, the love is the key. This (laughs) is an amazing conversation. I cannot thank you enough for your honesty, for sharing your heart, for sharing, you know, memories of TT. It is for people who knew of her, they learn more about her through this conversation and can appreciate the way that you two work together to build Miss Jessie's. It's a special, special brand and you are a special woman. So I can't thank you enough for being with me here today. Oh, Corinne, thank you so much. Titi, she's hearing this. She's smiling. I'm smiling. Thank you. That's our show for today. If you have questions about where to start in your beauty career, drop us a line at hello at beautybizcamp.com. Remember, there are many roads to success, but each of them requires you to start. So take that step forward today. See you next time.